This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us again. Moses told the Lord in Exodus 19, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. Well, it is a holy site. It's where the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments. It's the site to which Elijah fled in 1 Kings 19, the site Paul came to after his conversion to Jesus Christ. But many today are wondering just where is Mount Sinai? We're going to talk about this today with author and filmmaker Joel Richardson. His book is called Mount Sinai. Sinai in Arabia, the true location revealed. And so good to welcome you back to the show, Joel. How are you? I'm doing very good. Thanks so much for having me back, Janet. Well, thank you for coming on. This is a subject that is just beyond me because I don't know a whole lot about the location of Mount Sinai. Has this been a big discussion over the last uh, many years about the location of Mount Sinai and where it originally was? Well, it's been a big discussion for quite some time. Of course, the traditional site is down there in the Sinai Peninsula. Um, but, you know, that particular site, it really doesn't have any historical, archaeological, or traditional evidence backing it. It's really just something that developed um, in about the fourth century. You know, you had some Egyptian monks that went out there and sort of said, well, this is the mountain. Hmm. And then in the fifth century, you had Emperor Justinian built a fortress there called St. Catherine's. Um, and so you sort of had the weight of the Catholic Church, the Roman Empire behind it, but it was as a result of this sort of, uh, I'll call it traditional site, that a lot of people lost uh, sight of the real location of Mount Sinai, which is actually over there in northwest Saudi Arabia. Wow. Well, that, that was my first thought. I thought the Sinai Peninsula, I mean, isn't that where Mount Sinai is? So why is it that it has been understood that Mount Sinai was there? I mean, you talk about what happened in the 4th and 5th centuries, but has that been something archaeologists all along or, or you know, scholars of different types have accepted? Like, how widely accepted has it been that it was on, on the Sinai Peninsula? Well, again, what I do in my book is I go back and I trace, you know, all of the original sort of source documents and traditions. And so really what you had is, was in the 4th century, uh, so in the 300s, you know, you had these Egyptian monks. They started fleeing, ironically, you know, the corruption of modern Egyptian society. And uh, they were going out there to pray. You know, this was the, the beginning of the, the monastic movement, uh, Antony, you know, the asceticism and all that. And they just sort of just... Uh, just determined that this was it. But again, they didn't have any biblical or historical basis for doing so. And then as these these monks kept getting killed and massacred by the, uh, you know, the locals, the Ishmaelites that lived down there in the desert, eventually the emperor built this, this monastery, but the monastery was actually a fortress. It's hmm. got 50-foot walls. And so this really is it. It's just you had the authority of the, the Roman Empire or the Catholic Church sort of calling this and designating it Mount Sinai. But here's the thing is, within Exodus scholarship, 
a, a large percentage of Exodus scholars don't believe the event ever even happened. They don't believe the Exodus ever happened. Wow. And the reason is because there's no evidence for it there at the traditional site. And so, you know, it's really just a case of, um, and we know it's true, we know the Bible is true, but they've been looking in all the wrong places. Yeah, that's interesting. So was it the case then that when St. Catherine's Monastery was constructed at the base of the mountain there, they thought that that was the site of the burning bush? Was that kind of the understanding? Um, It was just, yeah, as a result of this sort of tradition that developed, again, among this small group of monks. Um, but it was just sort of a, a site that they picked, and they thought, well, maybe this is it, because it's one of the tallest mountains in the area. Um, but it's just biblically, you know, geographically, it just doesn't work. Yeah. Well, that's fascinating. So when you talk about it being in Saudi Arabia, what is the evidence for that? What do you think points to the fact that Mount Sinai actually is there? So there's, there's many different reasons. There's many different reasons. First of all, um, you have to begin with the location of Midian, because it says that Moses was with Jethro over there in Midian, and he married Jethro's daughter. And it says in Exodus 3, verse 1, he was shepherding Jethro's flocks, and he came to the far side of the desert, uh, and he came to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, the the location that uh, most scholars would identify as Midian, there's a tremendous amount of historical evidence, is a town over there in Saudi Arabia called Al-Bad. It's on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba, the Red Sea. Well, about 20 miles, 25 miles from the town of Al-Bad is this particular mountain. It's called Jebel Al-Luz. This is the mountain that I believe is the true Mount Sinai, and not just me, but many others as well. And what's so fascinating is that all of the locals there also believe that it's Mount Sinai. They actually call it the Mountain of Moses. So there's this very ancient tradition, and this is another issue, that uh, that says that this is a mountain, but because it's been sort of cut off in Saudi Arabia for so long, most of the Western world has largely forgotten about it. Wow. So now what does that have to do with the Exodus itself and the geographical confirmation of the Exodus? Is there further evidence in that part of the world that would confirm the Exodus as being true because of the sites that are around it and the geography there? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, so the other thing beyond the location of Midian is the Sinai, the, the Red Sea crossing had to have taken place at the Gulf of Aqaba. Um, the word is in Hebrew is Yam Suf. They, the Lord split the Yam Suf. Well, every time the Bible attaches a geographical location to Yam Suf, it's the Gulf of Aqaba. Hmm. It says that Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber by Eloth, and that's, of course, Elat today. That's not the Suez. That's, you know, the, on the eastern side of the Sinai Peninsula. And so, you know, it has to be over there. Now, when you go to this actual mountain, you have all of these sites around it. It is quite a few that all line up with the biblical narrative. You have an altar right at the base of the eastern side of the mountain. You have these pillars next to this altar. This is exactly what Exodus described. The Lord commanded Moses to build an altar at the base of the mountain. Deuteronomy tells us that there was a river that ran right down next to the altar. Sure enough, there's a dry riverbed right there. You have the, the pillars sitting right next to the altar. Uh, a couple of football fields from that is this very large um, pile of rocks, we'll say, that's covered with carvings, with, with petroglyphs of cows. 
this in all likelihood was the Golden Calf Altar. Oh, wow. And uh, there's several other sites. It's just, you know, I actually, when I went there, I went there as a skeptic. And once I saw it all laid out, I said, my goodness, if this is not the real Mount Sinai, then the Lord has clearly created an incredibly elaborate hoax. Oh, man, that's crazy. So is it, I mean, what does it look like now? Is it just, I mean, are there villages nearby or what, what is the landscape like in that area of the world at the moment? So this is way, way, way out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a drive because even if it's 20 miles from Al-Bad, it, you know, to get there, you have to go around this massive, massive mountain. It's about an 8,000 uh, foot mountain, and it, that doesn't sound all that tall if you think Estes Park being 12, um, but the problem is Denver's 6,000 feet, so, you know, you're yeah. starting at 6,000 feet up. This is a mountain equivalent to the size uh, in height, let's say, of, you know, Estes Park. Um, but, yeah, there are some Bedouin, little, you know, small Bedouin villages nearby, but they're, you know, very small. A few houses here or there, some gardens. For the most part, it's out in the middle of nowhere. And this is what's so fascinating about it, is everything is just essentially untouched. You know, the, the, this altar, these columns, there's, um, you know, the petroglyphs, there's paintings, there's a giant split rock on the other side of the mountain, and it's just sitting there. Like, you can just drive out there, because it's so far removed that hardly anyone has visited it, hardly anyone has gone there, and it's all just sitting there, just waiting for, you know, the, the world, the, the archaeological world to explore. That is that is wild. When was it that you first went there? So it was last year at the end of April, beginning of May, uh, 2018. Um, had the invitation come toward the end of 2017, and uh, it's very difficult to get into Saudi Arabia. But yeah. here's why. Here's why it's so fascinating right now is it's about to open up to the world. Well, hang on, Joel. We're going to take a very quick break. Joel Richardson with us, his book, Mount Sinai in Arabia. We'll pick up the discussion right after this break. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Gofran and Khaled, two little boys from Syria, were orphaned four years ago. But when they came to Lebanon with their aunt as refugees, Heart for Lebanon was waiting for them. Heart for Lebanon was there to provide Christian education, emergency supplies, and the hope of the gospel to these two boys. Now they listen attentively to the Bible stories they're hearing and are memorizing Bible verses. They have hope now because of what God is doing through Heart for Lebanon. Your investment of $116 will help two families to get emergency supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call now, 888-247-5499. Here's Camille Melke, founder of Heart for Lebanon, to explain why he's encouraged right now. You could sense maybe from my voice the excitement, right? The sense of God has us here in a time and location in history that is unprecedented. This is an opportunity time, God-sized opportunity time like never before. Right now, you could see a, a wave of people in great anticipation at what God will further do in our midst in the years to come. Because I believe that the crisis in Syria is a long-term crisis, unfortunately so. But I also believe that uh, right now we are starting to reap what has been sowed for many, many years 
in the lives of the refugees. We are seeing churches full of Syrian refugees. We're seeing Muslims coming to Christ. We're seeing children uh, now being the greatest testimony and the best evangelists within their communities. This is the result of many years of hard work and greater, I believe, by faith, far greater results are coming in the near future. Your gift of $116 will allow Heart for Lebanon to help two families survive during the next 60 days. Call now, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com, 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. We're glad you're here and glad to be talking with Joel Richardson, author and filmmaker. His book is called Mount Sinai in Arabia, The True Location Revealed. And this is really fascinating. Archaeology and some of the looking for some of these ancient biblical sites is fascinating to me because I don't know a whole lot about it, but Joel is really giving us some interesting information. And you were saying, Joel, that you went out to this site uh, that you've been talking about in Saudi Arabia that you believe very well could be Mount Sinai. You had mentioned, though, when you visited visited this site last year. What's interesting now is that this is an area of the world, Saudi Arabia, that is beginning to open up. What is significant about that concerning, you know, the potential for Mount Sinai being in Saudi Arabia, along with the fact that now it's beginning to open up a little bit more to the world? Yeah, and I believe the time is ripe. So first of all, let me just say this, is this is more than just an archaeological site. The mountain itself, especially in light of the fact that so many people don't even believe the Exodus happened, it's more than just an archaeological site. It's a testimony. Mm -hmm. God himself has a testimony that, yes, all of the, and I'll just say the craziest things in the Bible, you know, ripping the ocean in half, coming down in fire on the mountain, you know, they're begging him, please stop talking that he, he essentially has preserved it for this hour to where he's, he's saying to this, the whole world, you know, we're, we're falling into tremendous unbelief. I mean, half of the Western Church is apostatizing, yep. and right in the middle of it, he's about to say, remember this? Yeah. Remember all of this stuff? It's real. And I really believe, if you think about it, the greatest revival in recent American history was the Jesus Movement. This was a great ingathering. Um, you know, going back to whatever you want to point to, the Azusa Street Revival, I mean, this was a great ingathering, and one of the primary driving factors was the fact that the state of Israel was reestablished in 1948. People were looking at, at ground reality and going, wow, the Bible is true. And I really believe there's a strong chance that as, as Mohammed bin Salman has uh, stepped in as the crown prince, he's changing the country, and all of a sudden, this this... I mean, such a foundational story within the, within the biblical narrative, the story of redemption. It's about to be proclaimed to the world. I believe the Lord is really going to use this to wake people up to the re- reliability and the historicity of the biblical testimony. That is really important. And you're right, that is a testimony. So now... How is this seen in the world of scholarship, Joel? When you look across the board, you had mentioned in the book that in 2013 you had a number of scholars that gathered to debate the relocation of Mount Sinai. But how widespread is the belief among scholars that, in fact, this site is the original Mount Sinai? Well, so there's a handful of scholars that uh, have been champions of this site. Frank Moore Cross was a legendary scholar at Harvard. Um, he's he's not with us anymore. He he believed this was the real Mount Sinai, and there's been a handful of others. Um, but 
by and large, it's largely been looked down upon. And the reason is because it was never able to be explored by traditional scholars. It was mostly sort of some of these renegade American uh, evangelicals that were sneaking over there in the 1980s and 90s and, <laughs> and taking pictures and so forth. And so traditional scholars don't like that. They don't want some, you know, some sensationalized, you know, just popular adventure of finding a location. So there's been a lot of frowning upon it. Um, but, you know, I've invited all of these scholars that are critical of it to have a public debate, to let's talk about this and and so far, I've had four different uh, scholars, I won't mention their names, but they've all turned it down. And the reason is because as much as they like to sort of poo-poo it and denigrate it, it is a really incredibly rock-solid uh, case. It's by far the most valid candidate of all of the different uh, candidates out there. That is so interesting. Do you think that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, as he's opening up Saudi Arabia more and more to the world, would even allow that kind of scholarship, excavation, or whatever needs to take place to confirm whether or not it is Mount Sinai to take place? Would he be in favor of that at this juncture? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll just say I'm actually in dialogue with the Saudis. Um, They fully, absolutely believe that it is the real Mount Sinai. They always have. And this is what's amazing. And, you know, they claim to have all sorts of artifacts that they're going to bring out to the world. And they're very excited about opening it up to the world um, as, a, as a tourism site. Now, you know, there's a lot of political, sen- politically sensitive issues in the kingdom. You've got a lot of, you know, radicals. They think, oh, all these, you know, Zionist evangelicals are going to come over. And, you know, there's different things like that. Yeah. But the, the Saudis, absolutely, they are excited. They're very excited. And, and in fairness to them, they've done a good job at protecting it and preserving it and, and keeping it safe for all these years. And it's about to become... A very, very big story. Wow. This is so interesting. You had mentioned in the book as well about this name, the Mountain of Almonds. Now, people might not know anything about that, but but what significance does that hold, that designation of the mountain as the Mountain of Almonds? Yeah, so in Arabic, if you go on, a ma- you know, on Google Earth or something, it's called Jebel al-Luz, which means the Mountain of Almonds or Almond Mountains. And what's interesting is when you look at, you know, the, the story of the Exodus, you have uh, all you have Aaron's almond rod that actually went into the Ark of the Covenant, and then it, it blossomed miraculously. You have the menorah itself that was the the design for the menorah was given on Mount Sinai, and the menorah that was kept in the temple was designed specifically after almond branches. And so, you know, it's it's interesting that almonds featured so so prominently in, um, you know, the design of some of these original sacred uh, artifacts that went in the temple. And that's a part of you know, Saudi Arabia that's known, this mountain is known for being a place where almonds grow abundantly. Wow. Well, you know, you obviously think if Mount Sinai is located in Saudi Arabia and you look at the, you know, the hatred, for lack of a better term, between the Jews and the Muslims, how does Israel view this sort of idea that that Mount Sinai might actually be in one of the most restrictive Muslim countries in the world? You know, I'm not sure how Israel uh, views it. It's interesting. There's a lot of economic and just there's a lot of reproachment between the Saudis and Israel because of this mutual enemy uh, in Iran right now. Yeah. It's interesting when you look at Ezekiel 38:39, the Battle of Gog Magog. It talks about this invasion from the north, and it specifically says that there is this group that's protesting, 
and that's Sheba and Dedan. That's Saudi Arabia. So it's interesting that in the last days, it actually cast Saudi Arabia as being uh, certainly not on board with the coming Antichrist coalition. Rather, they're actually supporters of Israel. Wow. And things are actually moving in that direction right now. That is interesting, too. What about the Gulf of Suez? You had mentioned that before, that you think the Exodus crossing was not the Gulf of Suez, but the Gulf, uh, the, the Gulf of Aqaba. Is that how you pronounce it? Aqaba. Aqaba. Yeah. Sorry, I'm, my Arabic isn't so good. <laughs> but w- what is the significance of that? And, and really, Mount Sinai's location in general, for a lot of people, they'd say, if we, if we never found my, Mount Sinai, would it really matter? What is the importance of even nailing this down? How do you see it, Joel? Well, the reason that some people believe that it was over there on the western side of the Sinai is because of the traditional site. If the traditional site is the real Mount Sinai, then just logically, the sea crossing had to be to the west. And so they placed it at the Suez Canal. The problem is that doesn't work biblically. The Yam Suf is always connected geographically to the other side of the Sinai. So that's one uh, reason. And you could say, does it really matter? Well, you know, ultimately, does anything matter? Does any archaeology matter? Of course it matters, because right. it, again, it validates the scriptures. But here's what's interesting, is you have this, these traditions. Uh, you have one in Deuteronomy 33, this is the blessing of Moses, there's one in Habakkuk 3, Judges 5, and it talks about God marching before his people as a victorious warrior coming from Sinai toward Jerusalem, and he goes up through Edom. Hmm. So Edom, of course, is southern Jordan. Well, this is a very prominent picture throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus actually uses that picture, and he applies it to his second return. But it only works if Mount Sinai is south of Edom, down there in Saudi Arabia. If you move it way over to the Sinai, it just doesn't work, because just in terms of the layout of the region, it just doesn't work. It has to have been Jerusalem, down through Edom, and then south of that is Mount Sinai. My, so so it might be the case from what you're extrapolating here that Saudi Arabia could have a very significant role in the end times, which is interesting. No, I absolutely believe it. And, and you know, I didn't mention this, but one of the reasons it's about to open up to the world is because Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is about to build. They're already in the process of building this mega city. They're actually calling it a city-state called Neom. And it's, it's literally, Janet, the size of Israel. And it takes up that whole northwestern province called the Tabuk province, uh, right up there by Jordan and Israel and, and Egypt. And they want it to be basically Dubai on steroids. Oh, wow. And right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it is Jebel al-Luz, i.e. the real Mount Sinai. Goodness, are they, is part of the idea there that Neom would be a place from which people could then see Mount Sinai, that it's all kind of tied together a little bit? Well, I think they know that it will be, it'll essentially be a park. You know, it'll be a, an archaeological historical park. And, and there's tremendous beauty there, by the way. Um, some of the wadis right there on the Red Sea, it's absolutely gorgeous. But it, it's just, they want to welcome in the world for commerce and technology and robotics and all these different things. And suddenly again, you know, after having been behind, we'll call it the Iron Curtain of Saudi Arabia all these years, all of a sudden this city comes along, this new plan, this big development project, and the whole world, I'm convinced this is going to become one of the, the, the biggest tourism destinations for Christians and, and people, really. I mean, even Muslims are actually very interested in it. And of course, Jews, I think it's going to be one of the, because I, I can tell you, for me, after being there, 
it was absolutely one of the most faith-stirring, faith-inspiring events of my whole life. It just really gave me faith in the historicity of the story. Well, that is really significant. Again, the name of the book is Mount Sinai in Arabia by Joel Richardson. Joel, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Janet. All right. God bless you. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today after this. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Well, French revolutionary Maximilien Robespierre, one of the principal architects of the Reign of Terror, once had this to say, the secret of freedom lies in educating people, whereas the secret of tyranny is in keeping them ignorant. This is a quote I think should be widely disseminated in America today because we are increasingly a gullible and uninformed people when it comes to matters that affect all of our lives. Is there any way out of this kind of ignorance? We're going to talk about it today with Tanner Roberts, author of Dumb Politics, The Political Rhetoric and Blissful Ignorance of a generation. Tanner, great to have you here. So good to have you, and thank you for joining us. Janet, thank you for having me. That was very well said. Well, I can't take credit for the quote, but I thought it kind of fit the theme of your book. You know, I like it. I wish I included that in my book. Well, feel free. You know, you, you can't go wrong with the French revolutionary leaders when it comes to tyranny and ignorance. But, you know, this is really interesting because you say all this stuff about dumb politics is really fostering, I should say, a generation of high dependency. They're making the younger generation more susceptible to dumb politics in general by what's going on. How do you see the broad picture right now when it comes to dumb politics? How would you characterize it? Yeah, good question, Janet. And the reason, you know, the subtitle of my book is The Political Rhetoric and Blissful Ignorance of a Generation. I don't specifically say my generation, and I'm 28 years old, so uh, I'm part of the millennial generation. But the way it's shaping out is what I call in my book acceptable dependency. It's when you have, um, you know, older generations kind of fostering that entitlement of the younger generations. So when you have, you know, kids my age um, that are living at home with their parents at one of the highest rates in history, you know, who do you blame for that? Do you blame the parents or do you blame the kids? And I think it's a little bit of a mixture of both because you are having parents nurture that dependability or uh, dependency and uh, kids um, accepting that. Um, So when you have politicians like, um, you know, politicians that grew up in the new left era, Bernie Sanders, Maxine Waters, right. um, all those people saying that, you know, uh, everybody deserves this, um, they have a right to that, whatever it is, they are nurturing that dependency. Yeah. And uh, that's, you know, kind of where my book stems dumb politics. And uh, that's kind of where that ignorance comes from. Yeah. Well, now it's been said about people like Sanders and Pelosi and the, the people on the left that the reason they want to foster dependency is to secure their own power, that the more you increase the size and the scope of the federal government, the more you make people dependent on government, the more secure they will be in those positions. And so it benefits them. But that doesn't really 
clear up the problem of why you have people who are not in politics fostering dependency of younger generations. So how would you look at that problem where you do, and it's true, I completely agree with you. You have older generations that are fostering this dependency. What do you think is driving that though? What do you think is going on? You know, you spoke to it on the political side. It's definitely about a grab for power. Um, you know, for those not in politics, you know, it's hard to pinpoint it uh, because some people do like that dependency on them. They feed off of that when somebody's that reliant on somebody. Uh, my parents were not that way. Uh, they tried to get me out of the house as fast as possible. <laughs> and um, I certainly respect them for that because it's certainly something I will do as well. But I think one of the biggest problems, too, we have, not just in politics, um, but with a generation, I think it's really stemmed down from politics and it's also stemmed down for culture is that we have completely mistaken, um, empathy, uh, for envy. Yeah, you know, true. We, we, we think these things are empathetic, um, but really they're just envious of what other people have, what life I don't have that I want, but I, 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 I have the means to achieve it. I just rather depend on somebody else to get it for me. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the uh, root causes. Uh, one of the root problems, too, is uh, is mistaken empathy for envy. Yeah, I agree with you there. So, for example, when we see these proposals for free college for all, and those of us who've already been through college are rolling our eyes and saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's not like you're just going to get free college. The money will be printed out of the mint and it's just been delivered to you in a, a gigantic Brinks truck. I mean, somebody else is going to be paying for that. But the generations that are younger who are enamored, for example, with socialism and socialistic type policies and this new, as if it's a new thing when it's really an old thing that never works. How, how do you address to a younger generation, hey, the free stuff that you really want may not be the best thing for you or for anybody else in terms of the price we would pay as a society if we went down that road? You know, that's exactly right, too. And you spoke about it, you know, every generation thinks they're onto something revolutionary. Yes. But it's nothing, you know, it's it's revolutionary in the sense that they're assimilating um, with the masses of today, uh, yesterday, and the future. It's going to be the same uh, kind of revolutions that we've already gone through and been through. We saw it in the 1960s with a new left, um, you know, that did bring about um, some good things, but a lot of those things... Uh, our systemic problems today, but um, you, you know it's 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 really about educating people. And like you said, nothing's a free lunch. And when you have that basic ignorance of economics, um, those things all sound great on paper, yes. and those are things right. that want to get pushed. And again, that's the mistaken envy, envy for empathy. Um, by pushing those ideas and um, uh, our generation becoming more susceptible to them. Well, that's right, right. Yeah, and um, so, you know, it it really comes down to education. Um, Actually getting out of your bubble, because you see what we're inundated with every day. Um, You know, it, it comes in through academics. It comes in through media, through Hollywood. Uh, through music, through everything. People are just blasted with it every day. And uh, we've really lost our moral sensibility amidst all of that. Yes. Um, So it's really hard, you know, for generations to go through all that and think, oh, there's nothing wrong with my demand set and people having to meet my demand because that moral obligation 
has been completely lost. Right, right. Do you think there has been a movement away from understanding what our rights are as the founders understood them, as opposed to what we are now hearing all the time is our rights? It seems that the definition of rights keeps expanding on the left. Now you have a right to health care. You have a right to a college education, a right, a right, a right. What what do you make of that trend? We're, we're, we're now hearing that certain things are rights that the founders never would have called rights. I doubt that's a great question. Um, so, you know, people, you know, you have a right to work hard yourself, to make something out of yourself and go after the things that you want. Right. Um, nobody's going to give that to you. And and I think that's another person's right is, well, no, we don't have to give that to you. That's not something we have to do. That is an actual right. That is an actual freedom is uh, being able to determine what is best for yourself. And, you know, people, they unfortunately look to government for prosperity. Government cannot make you prosperous. Right. You know, yes. they can only clear the way for prosperity. Yes. And I definitely tell a lot of people, you know, you we, we give credit to, you know, whether it's Trump administration, whatever the administration is for booming economies, things of that nature. The government doesn't actually do that in a sense that they make policy um, to help booster people out of poverty, to get people in jobs, to get them off of food stamps. They get out of the way. That's what they do. Um, So they can get credit in the sense that they, uh, you know, remove the barriers to that uh, specific thing. So, you know, government cannot be your salvation for all. Only you can. You know, you you can be the self-determination in your life to make those things happen. Um, So nobody's going to give you anything, even if you come, uh, you know, just keep repeating that it is my right. It's my right. I deserve it. That's that's just not going to happen for you. And the quicker you realize that, um, the quicker you'll be able to learn that self-determination is the only way to go. Well, and what's so interesting about that, and I want to get into this a little bit more on the subject of individualism versus collectivism, because that's a big theme in your book. If you don't understand why self-determination was actually key and individual liberty was key to the success of this country, then you may not connect the dots on how self-determination is actually in your own best interest as you are the latest generation having to go to work and having to make a life and a family in your way in society. We're going to pick up on this conversation with Tanner Roberts when we come back. The name of his book, Dumb Politics. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Stay with us. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there 
for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561, 855-565-2561. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. My guest is Tanner Roberts, author of the book, Dumb Politics, The Political Rhetoric and Blissful Ignorance of a Generation. And we were discussing some of these things that we're seeing in society all around us, this kind of acceptable dependency that's been fostered and how we see really this problem all around us, the younger generation more susceptible to these ideas that are put out there about promoting policies and ideas that subsidize groups at the expense of others. And this is what you say dumb politics is. Tanner, that it really is the act of promoting policies and ideas that subsidize groups at the expense of others. What would you say are some of the most glaring examples that you see right now of that kind of dumb politics? Well, you know, I can think of one immediately being uh, the minimum wage, right? Because everybody thinks, um, especially younger generations um, that are making minimum wage, they see a $15 hike in minimum wage. Well, that's a great thing. Um, they don't see the unintended consequences with that. They don't see parties B and C that are getting affected right. as well. So when you've got businesses that are forced to pay more, they're ending up having to cut hours, uh, to cut people, or even worse, uh, completely close up shop. Right. Uh, I, I provide many examples, especially in the states of Washington and California, where these things are already taking place. Um, you know, they uh, minimum wage is really a difference of where you're at in your age, where you're at in your working career. That's all it is. I mean, I understand there are people out there making a minimum wage um, that are older, uh, but the majority are just a difference in age. And if I tell you that I make $300 an hour, you might say, oh, that's amazing. Ah, yeah, but I only work one hour a week. (laughs) And then suddenly that becomes, oh, that's terrible. Um, So, you know, it's those kind of policies um, where it sounds good, more money for more people. Yeah, that's great. Um, but you're not seeing the effects that it has on business owners, small businesses, uh, people closing up shop and people trying to make more by working more. No, that's completely true. And that that example is perfect. It drives me crazy to think about it because not only does it drive these small businesses out of business, as you've mentioned in many cases, but what really drives it, I think, is this idea that I deserve it. I shouldn't have to work for a low wage. I'm better than that. They should be better to me. And 
we're losing this idea that, you know, for generations, we had people working three jobs to feed their families. I'm not saying that that was an ideal thing. It wasn't. But you had people coming over here from all over the world to have that chance to better themselves, to achieve the American dream. If you start out saying, you owe me as much as I want for this low-end job, it's negating not only the self-determination angle, but it's negating the idea that certain jobs are only worth so much economically. I mean, it's like it's just ignored. I deserve it. You know, it's like L'Oreal. You know, I'm, I'm worth it. Pay me 15 bucks. Well, you're not going to have a job after a few months if you're going to drive your business out under. I mean, it, economically, it doesn't make any sense. Absolutely, Jane. And, and more so, you know, I, I don't understand the justification of getting paid more without additional output. Yes. Um, those are things that companies look at. If you're more valuable... I'll definitely get that um, um, that pay raise that you want. But without any additional output, there's no justification for doing that. And the cherry on top of that is calling it a living wage as if you support something different. I guess you're supporting a death wage. I'm not sure what that means. It's those kind of That's true. you know those kind of labels that make it dumb politics. Yes, right. Well, it sh- and it should give you an incentive. With our kids working minimum wage jobs, we always tell them this is you know you need to experience this because it will make you work hard in life and you want to move up. You want to be able to do better and better as you get older. It's kind of an incentive. Yeah, I, I don't get that at all. Other than the fact that it's politically popular in some circles, even if it's a big failure. What about some of these? Dumb Dumb politics that you talk about in particular, Tanner, you talk about, for example, I I like this dumb name calling where you have these pejoratives thrown around. How do you see the name calling fitting into the bigger problem of dumb politics? Well, the biggest problem with name calling is it becomes character assassination, right? Um, So when you label somebody with um, hateful terms, um, you're slandering them. Um, you're assassinating their character and you're creating doubt in people's mind. That's one of the biggest consequences to name calling. Um, you know, we've kind of gotten rid of, and I'm not saying it's, it's good, uh, but the word stereotype has completely died. So people might stereotype. That happens. It happens every day, whether you like it or not. Um, I talk about an example in my book, you know, uh, on the way to work this morning, I was driving behind somebody that was going about, 40 miles per hour on the freeway, very dangerous, and yes. I can't help it, but the first thought in my mind is this person is probably an older person, somebody that's elderly, yes. and I drive past and I confirm my stereotype. Right. Now, was that wrong of me? Does that make, make me an ageist? I, I don't know. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> You know, we just don't have a to good go guesser. Ex- You're a good guesser is yeah. what you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, um, so, you know, you see those kind of things and people may stereotype and they could be very negative stereotypes, but they don't mean their counterparts, their extreme counterparts, their sexism, uh, racism, um, you know, all those kind of different things that people associate, um, you know, maybe basic things. You know, Hollywood uses stereotypes all the time to make easy, quick punchline jokes. Yes. um, But they don't get chastised for it. Um, But I just, I don't like the extremeness that we've gone to to character assassinate people, especially at high levels of government when they're succeeding or anything like that, going back through old Twitter posts to see if they can catch them in something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's silly. Going back a little bit to what we were talking about before with the minimum wage, you have uh, also 
uh, section in your book on dumb economics. And, you know, we've been talking quite a bit recently about the Green New Deal and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And people say this is just socialism. It's not going to work. You can't possibly make this work and all the rest. But what do you think of these kinds of proposals that are just socialist proposals? They're very utopian in nature, but they appeal to a lot of especially younger you know, generation members who never really remember the Cold War. You know, it's um, it's a very hard concept for a lot of the younger generations to get their mind wrapped around. You know, I went to Texas A&M. I uh, graduated from economics, and uh, they certainly had a Keynesian focus on economics um, uh, rather than a free market uh, principle that they taught. And one of the things that are that's so hard for people to wrap their heads around is that you, we have the ability to lower taxes and actually make more government revenue. We actually saw that with the Trump tax cuts. Yep. Now, unfortunately, the spending was still out of control. Right. So when you lower or when you raise government revenue, it really doesn't do anybody any good if that justifies more spending. Um, but people don't realize that cutting taxes, things of that nature, actually helps increase revenue if you're really worried about getting more revenue to the government. Sure. Um, that's one of the methods to do that. Um, you know, the, I, I give the example of the Laffer curve. That was a subject taught about two minutes in uh, <laughs> one of my classes um, at Texas A&M, which yeah. Texas A&M is supposed to be a very conservative school. The student body is a faculty, not so much. Yes. Um, but, you know, it's those basic principles uh, that people have a hard time wrapping around uh, because their solution to all these big spending, um, uh, you know, proposals is just to tax more. And, you know, we have billionaires out there that we can tax. We have all these rich people that we can tax. We have the top 10%. Well, the top 10% is making about $200,000 per household. That's each couple contributing or each uh, person married uh, contributing to that household. That's not a a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And uh, you really have to break down those aspects to it and just realize that, you know, socialism only goes so far. Um, as long as you have other people money to take. Once that's run out, then you've got Venezuela, basically. Right, exactly. Well, and it must drive you a little bit crazy since you understand economics to see what so many people are falling for, doesn't it? I mean, do you look at these people and say, ah, get some basic education on how it all works? Oh, it's very frustrating. You know, that was one of the biggest reasons I wrote my book is um, because a lot of our our generation is is really just buying into what's on TV. They're not really reading anymore, especially when it comes to nonfiction. That's why I kept my book very short to the point and uh, try to put a little entertainment in there too as well. Um, Because yeah, you can get frustrated all day long, but you got to help at least, you know, spread some kind of education out there, spread a different point of view because they're not getting it. They're not getting it in the classroom. They're not getting it on TV. They're not getting it anywhere else. Um, So that frustration really just you need to foster that and and just help educate people, whether they agree with you or not. I, I don't think everybody's going to agree with me on everything in my book. I certainly hope not. I don't want to live in a world where everybody agrees with each other. Um, but it's just getting that different perspective. And that's was really one of the biggest inspirations for me to write this book at my time in life. Well, I think it's terrific. And I think you're going to give a lot of hope to a lot of people across the generations, including those older than you who say, all right, that's good. We have millennials who get it. <laughs> There's hope for <Right>. America. <laughs> well, the name of the book is Dumb Politics, the Political Rhetoric and Blissful Ignorance of a Generation by Tanner Roberts. So good to have you here, Tanner. Really appreciate your being with us. 
Thank you. Thank you so much, Janet. I really enjoyed it. Well, I did too. God bless you. Thanks again. Again, the name of the book, Dumb Politics. And we thank you so much for tuning in to Janet Meffer today. We'll see you next time.